you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. We are beginning a series looking through the Psalms specifically. Uh, there are Some of these Psalms are uh, pointing to Jesus, but they're whispering His name. Others, however, shout it from the rooftops. We are going to be looking at those that shout the Messiah uh, out loud. Um, we are looking at what we're calling the Messianic Psalms. These are Psalms in which Jesus is identified very poignantly. He is, he is the center focus of many of these Psalms. And this morning we begin in Psalm chapter 2. Uh, by the way, the Bible Project has videos on all kinds of stuff related to Scripture. Every book of the Bible, uh, uh, all kinds of different literature, word studies, all kinds of great stuff. So, so, um, I highly recommend their stuff. They they do very high quality, very solid biblical material. Psalm chapter 2 this morning. Stand with me. We'll read the entire psalm together. It's only 12 verses. And then we will dig in to uh, what God has said about his Messiah. Psalm 2. This is God's word. And if you read it, it, if you read it, but if you let it, it will change your life. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Pray with me. Father, as we approach your word this morning, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us. Help this prayer be our prayer. This song be our song. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. We are, we are looking at the Messianic Psalms, those Psalms that point us directly to Christ in, in, in a very powerful way. Every Psalm points to Jesus, but these, uh, these are, have flashing neon signs pointing directly at him. And the first one we see is Psalm 2. Like we dis- like they discussed in the video that we just watched, Psalm 1 and 2 serve as an introduction to the entire Psalter. The, the Psalms are broken up into five books. Psalms 1 and 2 give you the introduction. And remember, in, in verse 1, or chapter 1, it starts with, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. We have this picture immediately of this choice that the wise man takes, the righteous man takes, not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, not to stand in the way of sinners, not to sit in the seat of the scornful. He's making a choice rather to walk in the ways of God, to stand 
in the place of God to sit at God's right hand. He is making the choice to, to be with God, to shape his life according to God's principles, not to uh, go about his own counsel, not to go about the ways of the wicked. And, and the, the contrast there it's almost like the book of Proverbs, that contrast of righteous and wicked, that contrast of wise and foolish, that contrast of those two very different styles of life. They come to a head in Psalm 2. Because in Psalm 2, we see the opposite side. Psalm 1 really focuses in on the man who's blessed and how he follows God's law. He meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted by the river, and, and, and his leaf doesn't wither, and everything he does, God makes it to prosper. We focus on him in Psalm 1, but in Psalm 2, we focus on everyone else. And see, the fact is that we live in a world where the nations are in open rebellion against God. And that's exactly where this psalm begins. The nations are in open rebellion against God. Psalm 2, verse 1 through 3 say, Why do the nations rage? The word is only used here in the Hebrew Scripture. There's an idea of a noisy tumult. It's an idea of there being a whole lot of racket, chaos, some anger, some bad emotions in the brew of this word. It's like a, well, it's a raging Think of a raging sea. We use the word sometimes for that. A raging sea where the, the wind and the waves are just going like crazy and there's thunder and lightning and, and it's a terrible situation. He says the nations are like that. They're like a storm in the open sea where there's so much, ha there's so much going on. It's so tempestuous, the sea is, that, that it's a danger for anyone to be out on it. He's saying that's what the nations are like. Now, have we seen this picture of these waters raging before? Yeah, we have. Genesis chapter 1. The earth is without form and void. And, and there's a darkness over the face of the deep. The picture is of chaotic waters. And so he's looking at it and he's saying, even from before the foundation of the world, there is this idea in the Hebrew psyche of these raging waters, these chaotic waters being so against God. And God then takes masterful control and puts them in order, sets them in their place, gives them their boundaries and creates the world out of it. That's the picture that, that the psalmist is seeing here. He says, why are the nations raging? What, what is the big hoopla about? Goes on. He says, why do the people's plot in vain? They're, they're not only making a whole bunch of noise, being angry and tumultuous. They are, they are plotting. They're scheming. They're, they're, they're crafty. Not crafty in the, I'm going to make something look nice crafty. They're not crafty like that. They're crafty like the serpent was crafty, right? They're plotting. But notice, the plot is in vain. We'll get to that more in a second, but it's just an empty plot. Like, like it looks like a good plot. It looks like something that might work. In fact, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves. I love that. They set themselves as though they, as though they can really set themselves firmly. 
They set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So they, they come together and they scheme together. They plot it out. They plan out. How are we going to go against God? How are we going to go against the anointed one of God? And so already we have this picture of the world going against God. Now, now I know that's not something we see in everyday life. So, so y'all might need a couple of hints and helps to, to kind of recognize it. Cause we never see this, right? Oh no, we see it all the time. We live in a culture that doesn't know the difference between a man and a woman. We live in a culture that doesn't know basic truth that denies its existence altogether. That says, no, 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 no. It's not based on genetics. It's not based on how you're made. It's not based on what God has made you. Because there's no room for God. That's what this is talking about when he says that they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're scheming. They're plot- How can we get rid of God? And this is no new thing. People have been trying to do this for years and years and years and decades and decades and decades and centuries and centuries and centuries and for several millennia now. Now, if you take an old earth view and you think people are thousands and thousands and thousands of years old, they've been doing it for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. You take the young earth view and it's been only about 6,000 years, they've been doing it for about 6,000 years. Doesn't matter. They've been doing it since Genesis 3. Since we said we are going to define good and evil on our own terms. We're going to do what we want to do. We're going to determine what's right. Instead of following God's commands and instead of doing what He says, instead, no, they conspire together, they set themselves up against God and they say, how can we defy Him? I I want to be careful because I don't want to land on one side of the political aisle because I hate to tell you this, it's a problem on both sides. There are people right now who will tell you something to your face. I'm going to do this. They go on TV shows all the time. We're going to get down to the bottom of this. We're going to do ex- we're going to find out what's wrong and we're going to make it we're going to stop all of this and then nothing. Because they have no intention of it. It's a grift. They're only seeking after money. They're setting themselves up against God. Oh, they sound right. They may sound like they've got good intentions. They may sound like they're going to do the right thing, but they really don't. You see, this is on both sides. This is on all sides. He doesn't say some of the kings of the earth. He doesn't say the kings of some of the countries. He says the kings of the earth. All those other kings. I happen to think that this writer has in mind David as he's writing this, but that as he goes along, he figures out that it's not just David. He's looking forward to a future king. You'll you'll see a little bit of what I mean in just a second, but what do they say? How do they go against God, against his anointed? They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The the words used here are you yoke an ox to cart and you, you, you use the bonds to yoke the ox to the cart and you use the cords to direct the ox as he goes. They're saying, they're, they're like ox, or they're like oxen that are saying, we don't want to be yoked. We don't want to do work for our master farmer. So let's break the bonds. Let's break these cords. The nations are in open rebellion against God. And I got to be honest with you. I know because I are one. But for the grace of God, I am in open rebellion against him. In fact, in fact, I'll go so far as to say this. 
Every single one of us in this room were at one point in open rebellion against God. And if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, if you haven't repented on your sin, of your sins before the throne of God, you still are in open rebellion against Him. And that's what needs to change. So if that's you, there you are. You're here. You don't even have to look any further in the passage to find you. There you are. You're in verses 1 through 3. But I'm not a king. Doesn't matter. You're still in open rebellion. So what does God do? What's God's answer going to be to this open rebellion? Well, God's answer to the world's rebellion is his Messiah. God's answer to the world's rebellion is his Messiah. I want you to notice first, though, before we talk about the Messiah, what his answer is not. His answer is not rage. God's answer to the world's rebellion is not rage. He's not responding in kind to what they're giving him. In fact, look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Laughs? He laughs at the foolishness of the nations rebelling against him. He knows He knows this plan is futile. These stubborn, stiff-necked people. By the way, you know what God's... What, what is... It, it's probably not the most common term for Israel, but it's the most common in the prophets. You know what it is? Stubborn. Or stiff-necked. One or the two or both. Sometimes he puts them both together. You stubborn people. You stiff-necked people. In fact, the word stubborn comes from that picture of having a stiff neck. <laughs> because when you get stubborn and you don't want to do it, your neck gets stiff, doesn't it? You, you like stiffen up your neck. No, I, I don't want to. Yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> and he's laughing. Look how stupid that guy looks. Look at him down there. He thinks he's going to overthrow me. It's ridiculous. He knows they're going to bow the knee to him, whether they want to or not. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know some of them are going to be confessing when they don't really want to, but they have to, because, well, there's no denying it anymore. Instead of responding to their rebellion with violence, with anger, with rage, he responds with laughter. There is a quiet dignity in genuine authority. When you are really in charge, you don't have to yell. You don't have to be loud. I'm learning this. It's a hard lesson. I'm taking my time learning it. It's very tough. But when you are in charge, there's no need for that. You don't have to rage. This week, Y'all may have seen the video. You may have heard about it. The mayor in, uh, I believe it was Hudson, Ohio, they had been doing some stuff in schools. They had had a book that had certain assignments for kids to fill out. And, and some of the assignments were things that high school students shouldn't be writing about. This was writing prompts. And, and some of it was stuff that they should not be writing about at all. I'll leave it at that, okay? You can look up the story and find out on your own. This mayor comes in to the school board meeting. He comes up to the microphone. He says, I'm so-and-so, I'm the mayor of this town. It's come to my attention that there are certain assignments that the schools have assigned that are inappropriate for our kids. I've already talked to the judge, and he is ready to issue the subpoenas. So I'm going to give you a choice. You either resign or charges will be brought against you. Thank you. And that's all he said. Didn't have to be loud. Didn't have to go on a long diatribe. All I had to say is, look, I'm in charge here. This ain't going to happen. You see, 
genuine authority doesn't have to rage. Sometimes we feel like we have to. Sometimes the, the, the anger and, and, and the emotion of the moment leads us to get very worked up and we want to, to explode. And it's easy to explode, but the fact of the matter is God holds his temper because he doesn't need his temper. True power doesn't need to flex its muscles. I want you to think of the difference. Anybody know what a mastiff is? Y'all know what a mastiff is? A mastiff is a dog that looks like a horse. It is huge. My uncle had a mastiff. I had another friend that had this little tiny chihuahua wiener dog thing. I don't even know what it was. Okay? One of them barked like crazy, and the other one hardly ever barked at all. Can you guess which one? Yeah, the little tiny dog yapped his little head off. Try to bite at your ankles. That's about it. That's all it could do. That mastiff, though, you got on his wrong side. Well, well, you didn't get on his wrong side. That's <laughs> he didn't need to bark. God doesn't need to bark, so he doesn't. The earth is his. There's no question about it. So he just looks at rebellion and he laughs. He holds them in derision. He mocks them. That's 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 he he doesn't respond in rage. Instead, his answer is the Messiah. And I want you to see two things about the Messiah. Verses uh, five and six show us that the Messiah is established by God. This isn't some random guy off the street. This isn't some let's do a lottery and let's pick out a name from a hat and that person will be our leader. This isn't just hey look this guy has is standing head and shoulders above the rest. He must be the king that you want, God. Like Samuel thought that the oldest son of Jesse was. It's not like that. No, no, no. God establishes his Messiah. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath. He's already laughed at them. Now he's going to speak in his wrath and the breath of his lips is enough. It doesn't even require him acting on it. Just the words are enough to bring them, to terrify them in his fury, as verse 5 says. And what does he say? He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The words are different. Verse 2, where it says the kings of the earth set themselves, that word is a putting into a position. This word, I have set my king, is a permanent placement. I have established him forever. That's the meaning in this word. It's the same word that we use for the word dwell, just in a more causative sort of form, cause to dwell. I have caused my king to dwell on Mount Zion, my holy hill. I have established him. God says, it's my king and I have put him there. Mine in the sense of I own him, I possess him. Not mine in the sense of this is the king I'm following because it's his son, right? It's God in human flesh is who this is. This is Jesus Christ. This is why I said he starts looking at David and looking at the contrast with the kings of the world. He's like, our king's not like that, but all the other kings are like that. But now he's coming to the point where he recognizes that God's not just set David on the throne. God has set the descendant of David, the son of David, on the throne. And that's not just Solomon or one of the other kings that take over Judah. That's not who that is. This king is the servant, the root of Jesse, the righteous branch, the anointed one. You get my point? See, he starts looking at David, but then he sees, oh, there's a bigger truth beyond David. 
quickly. He reigns over all the nations, verses 7 through 9. God's established him, and he's going to reign too. In fact, he already reigns. I will tell of the decree. It's, it's hard to know who's telling of the decree, whether it's the author or whether he's now speaking in the voice of the anointed one, of the Messiah. But I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So it sounds like, sounds like now the anointed one is saying, hey, this is my testimony. God has called me son. Did God ever, did God ever say, you are my son to Jesus? Y'all remember a time like that maybe? Like the bat, baptism? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. That's not, this is the day that you've been conceived. This is the day that you've become my son. That's not what that means. This, word, this phrase means that even today, it's true that I've begotten you. Okay? Even today, it's still true. This truth still holds even in the present. I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. All you got to do is ask. I want to do it. Come on, ask. Ask me to, please. Come on, hurry. Ask me to. God is excited. I can picture God in heaven. Like, come on, come on, hurry, hurry up. Ask me, ask me. It's like a kid saying, hey, hey, you want to you wanna know? You know, do you want to know something? Hey, guess what? Guess what I saw today? Guess what I did? Guess what I got? He's excited. He's waiting for, for the Messiah. He's waiting for Jesus to say, okay, dad, what is it? <laughs> okay, go ahead, dad. Please give me the nations as my hair. Boom, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> He's excited. Do you see that? Do you see that in the text? If you don't, look harder because it's there. God is excited to do his will. Chesterton talks about God like almost like a small child that finds such joy in everything that, that when he makes the sun to rise, he's up in heaven cheering and saying, ooh, do it again. I love it when that happens. God is excited about accomplishing his will. That should bring joy to our hearts. That should make us excited to see his will come because it makes him joyful. We got this picture of God like he's doing stuff and like he's a grumpy dad walking around, turning off all the lights, saying, oh, these kids, leaving the lights on. That's not God. God gets thrilled at the opportunity to show his grace. He is ecstatic at the chance to accomplish his will. I, I can see him pit, sitting on the edge of his seat just waiting for the moment. Come on, come on, come on, hurry. That, that's the God that says... Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. So we have a Messiah that reigns over all the nations. They're his inheritance. They're his possession. Everything belongs to him. This is why he can stand in the desert with the tempter saying, just bow to me and all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. And he can say, no, they're already mine. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The picture here, I believe, is of the rod of a shepherd. The rod was the instrument of protection for the sheep. And I don't think they were normally made of iron, but I imagine that would hurt. Think of a billy club that a police officer used to have. I don't know that police carry billy clubs anymore, but think of something like that. But picture it made of iron. I don't know what they made them out of before, like wood covered in leather or something. I don't know, but... but yeah, picture it made of iron. This is God going to war for his people. Dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, never to be fixed again. 
The Messiah reigns over all the nations. He's established by God and he reigns. And this is his answer. This is God's answer for the rebellion of the world. Which brings us really back to the rebellious folks. What, what hope do they have? Do they have any hope? I think they do. But I firmly believe the only recourse for the rebellious is repentance. The only recourse, the only hope they have as they have been in open rebellion against God, the only hope they have is to repent of their sins. Verse 10, now therefore, I, I almost wonder, sometimes now means in light of what we've just said, here's a conclusion. This is the direction it's all heading in. I, I almost wonder though if this now may not mean the other sense, as in right now, hurry, right now. Now therefore, don't wait. O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Right now, right where you are, just as you hear this message, be wise. Be warned. Don't let this be you. Don't let you become the potter's vessel that's been dashed to pieces by God's rod of iron. Don't let that happen to you. Instead, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We don't often put those two words together, do we? Rejoice and trembling. Joy without a proper fear is wasted. It's, well, it's the kings of the earth assembling against God, doing what they want to do instead of what he has called them to do. It is, it is just empty. Fear without joy is tyranny, but joy with fear. A, 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 an attitude that sees God in his holy majesty and adores and all worships him in, in, in recognition of his, his, of his majesty and of his justice and of his purity and holiness that puts him in the proper place that reveres him with the kind of respect and honor that he is due but that also sits in his lap hugs up close to his chest and says daddy I love you we need both. If all it is is fear, there's no intimacy. And if all it is is joy, it's flippant. We need to rejoice with trembling. Serve him with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Quit serving your own interests. Quit taking counsel together, raging against the Lord and against his anointed. Quit that and instead serve God with fear. Put him in the right place and do what he wants you to do and listen to his counsels. Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful. No, delight in the law of the Lord. Meditate on it day and night and you'll be like that tree planted by rivers of water. Do you see how all this is working together? This introduction is showing us the two choices of life. The choice of life to walk in the way of the wicked or to walk in the ways of God. To serve yourself or to serve Him. We've got to make the choice to serve Him. That's a choice that by my own strength I can't do. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. You, you, you may not even make it there. You're going to go do battle against the Lord. You may not even make it to the site of the battle. Julian the apostate died in the midst of war. He's called the apostate because, well, he was apostate. <laughs> he used to call Jesus the Galilean. It was a term of derision for him. As he is dying, 
he takes the blood that's beginning to clot out of some of his wounds and he throws it up in the air and he says, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. It's too late then. It's too late to recognize when, when God has put his punishment on you. It's too late then. No, no, no. Kiss him now. Go to him. Go to him now while you have the chance. That kiss is a sign of adoration for the one who is higher. You kiss a king as a means of paying homage to him. You kiss his hand. You kiss the king in recognition of his authority. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. God may be slow to anger, but once it once it's kindled, look out. And then almost out of place, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Almost out of place. You have the choice. You can either take refuge in him, you can turn back to him. You can you can you can repent of your sins and quit your rebellious nature against God. By his grace, by his power, by, by, by his working in you. Because it's him who does it, right? He's the one who enables you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Seems like we've read that recently. Our only recourse when we're in open rebellion against God, our only recourse is repentance. We have the Messiah who is reigning supreme over all the nations and it's only a matter of time before justice comes. So for those of you who have surrendered to him, who have repented and who trust in Christ, well, we can look forward to a day when he does make all things right. But if you haven't, it's a good day. I know it's raining outside. It's not very pretty. Doesn't matter. Instead, it's the perfect day to stop your rebellion against God. Pray with me. Lord, you know our hearts. You know where we are. You know where we need to be too. Those that are in open rebellion to you, I pray that they would submit. Repent of their sins. Surrender to your authority. To kiss the Son. To find in your Messiah the one that they've been longing for. For those who already have. For those that have already trusted you. Remind us that you are in control. Even while the nations are raging. Even while while they're plotting and scheming. Even though it looks like everything's going to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing we can do. Father, that doesn't matter because you're the one in charge. Help us to be faithful in difficult days. Whatever we need to do, you apply this word to our hearts and you make it real. Bring it to life in us. And we may look upon your Messiah with an ever-growing love, adoration, reverence, and in complete submission. We look forward to the day when you're done, when your Messiah reigns now, not just in the future, but today and forevermore. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.